church. This Jesus, He is for you. He is for us. He's thinking for us. He's concerned about the things that we're concerned about. The things that, that affect us today, the things that are deep in our hearts this morning, whether we're here in church or at home, things that are stirring in our heart, I want you to know this morning that, that this Jesus, He is saying that He is for us. He is on our side. This Jesus didn't just come as a great teacher or prophet or king or, or religious founder. But this Jesus came as a shepherd. He came as one who, who carries the sheep, passed the sheep in his hand and, and holds it close to his heart. So this Jesus, this morning, I want you to know, this Jesus, he's on our side. He is for us. If you're crying out for your children, he is crying out for them too. If you are trusting God for finances, He is interceding on your behalf. Whatever, whatever, wherever you are right now, the Lord is saying, I am for you. I am for you. Father, as we come this morning, Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that your word says that you gave everything freely for us. If you gave yourself for us, will you not likewise give us all good things? So we know, Lord, nothing good will you withhold from those you love, Lord, and you love us. So I pray, Father, for each one of my brothers and sisters, Lord. Whatever it may be that they are crying out for, praying for, and trusting you for, Lord. Father, I ask this morning, Lord, that you will hear their prayers, God. And you will assure them, Lord, that you are on our side, Lord. Thank you, Father. We look to you, Lord, this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Even as we commemorate the 50th day of the resurrection of Jesus with Pentecost Sunday this morning. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that the resurrection power of Jesus is still alive. It's still alive, Lord. Alive in the church, alive in your people, and alive in us, Lord. So we pray, Lord, this morning that we will have years to hear what you are saying to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, Lord. Amen and God bless you. You may be seated. What a powerful time of worship. I just enjoyed that so much. And it uh, made me miss Indonesia a lot. Miss Indonesian worship. I miss Indonesian friends, brothers and sisters. And I also miss Indonesian ayam gepre. So when the kitchen starts opening again, please have that on menu. <laughs> Is the kitchen ever going to open, Pastor? No. Permanently close. Oh, that was one of the things I always look forward to. <laughs> you know, there's a, a Danish philosopher who, who recounted this, this story. He was telling a story about how a, a band of thieves broke into a, a jewelry store. 
And they broke into this jewelry store. And, and uh, strangely, when the owners and the workers came the next day, they found nothing was missing. Not very smart thieves. You break into a jewelry store and go back without taking anything. But nothing was missing. So they thought, oh, maybe they came in, they broke in, and, and a, a noise uh, scared them off, and they ran away. So they were happy, and they went about doing their business again. And the following week, the business was very good. The jewelries were just being sold. They were flying off the shelves. And the owners, the workers, they were all very happy. Then a couple of weeks later, they were taking a stock check. And when they were taking their stock check, they found that all their $59 jewelry had a price tag of $59,000. What happened is the thieves actually switched all the price tags. So all this jewelry that were tens of thousands was sold for $59. $199. So over the next few days, the thieves came every day and they just bought some and bought some and bought some and they went off <laughs> because the shop lost everything. What they were left behind with were jewelry that were hardly worth anything because someone switched the price tags. <laughs> in our world today, in many things in life today, price tag has also been switched. <laughs> We no longer value the most important things anymore. But in this portion of scriptures, one of the things that's happened also is that there are portions of scripture that are very popular. We, we mark them, we highlight them, we, we frame them up, we put them all over the house. But one of those scriptures that we hardly will do that with is this portion of scripture that we're going to talk about this morning. John chapter 5, verse 19 to 29. It's one of those portions of Scripture that we just gloss over or we just do a Holy Ghost jump over and we move on. <laughs> now, I don't blame you because theologians struggle with this portion of Scripture. It's one of those portions of Scripture where you have statements within statements and brackets within brackets. So when Pastor Argus first asked me to share this, I was in fear and trembling. I was almost praying for lockdown again. No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. And then, when I was in Perth, I got a message from Pastor Argus. Prem, uh, I have to move you to June uh, because I got another speaker coming. I acted sad, but I was so happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I got away from this one, you know. And then a few days later, he messaged me. He said, oh, change again, Bram. You are back here again. So it was persecution for the few days. <laughs> you see, it's one thing to talk about what Paul said. It's one thing to talk about what John said or, or what different writers in their scriptures talk about. But this one is Jesus talking about one of the most profoundly important things. And so I'm in fear and trembling that I'm trying to explain the Lord. <laughs> so it's been a difficult preparation, but I want to just share with you that 
that a lot of this reflection that I'm sharing with you is reflection that I've had for myself. So what I'm sharing with you is also what, what the Lord has spoken to me, ministered to me. So I'm sharing out of that to you this morning. Just before I read that portion of Scripture, understand that in the book of John, there are always three things within which all the encounters in John are characterized by. One, it's about the deity of Christ. It's about his divinity. It's about how God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's about who Jesus is, that he is God. Second thing is always about a confrontation with someone, uh, a, a contending with the religious leaders or a, or a dialogue with the Samaritan woman. It's always a, a, a discussion or what do you call that? A contention, a conflict. A, a, always a, a point that Jesus, that, that John was trying to get across. Now, the Gospel of John was the last gospel to be written. And he wrote a lot of these things, highlighted a lot of these things, didn't put a lot of miracles or other things, highlighted a lot of these conversations because he felt that a gospel needs to be written that encompasses John 5, 19 to 29, that truly reflect, reflects who this Jesus is. That's why in John 20, 31, you know, John gives the, the whole purpose of the writing of the gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in Him. So a lot of the dialogue in the book of John encompasses these, these three things. A lot of the, the, the scriptures talk about these three things. Now, when you come to this portion of scripture, especially John 5, 19 to 29, it's very significant because of, of how it's flowed, how the whole narrative has flowed so far. Right? In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, we have the revelation of Jesus becoming flesh. And then from 19 onwards, he reveals himself to John the Baptist, then the disciples, then the Jews in Jerusalem, then the Jews in Judea, then to, then to the uh, uh, Samaritan woman. He detoured and went to see the Samaritan. And then the uh, nobleman's son. So you will see a sequence up to this point when we reach John 5, 19, 29, where he is now being confronted by the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders themselves. And why were they confronting him? They were confronting him because one of the 1,500 laws, Mershna, were broken, which is on the day of Sabbath, you're not allowed to carry anything above your shoulder from a private space to a public space or a public space to a private space. Where they came up with this law is amazing. <laughs> but they had another 1,499 of those. And so Jesus was confronted by this. So this is them standing before him. Verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you. Now, this word most assuredly is rabbinical language. It's language of Old Testament scholars, meaning pay attention, verily, listen, truly. So it's an emphasis that's used by scholars. 
So the Jewish leaders know what, the, what Jesus was saying. Right? So every time you hear that word, most assuredly or verily or truly, it's an emphasis that was used in biblical Old Testament scholarship. The son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So here they were confronting Jesus because they were upset that a man was healed on Sabbath. And Jesus' immediate response to that was this. Everything I do, I do in obedience to the Father. Whatever the Father does, I do. I follow exactly what the Father is doing. What was he asking? So he was actually framing that question to the Jewish leaders. If I am doing exactly what the Father wants, why are you upset that the Father's law of Sabbath was broken? Can the Father contradict himself? <laughs> so he was confronting the Jewish leaders in a very subtle way. Basically saying, what you are observing is not honoring of the Father. The Father has got nothing to do with your Sabbath. The Sabbath in Bible is, is not absence of work. Sabbath is about rest. Two different things. Absence of work and rest is two different things. God rested. He didn't stop working. God always works. He's always working. Ministry to is always working. Right? But he had his rest. But here, the Jewish leaders came up with all these laws, and they completely missed the heart of the Father. And Jesus was standing right in front of them, and he was saying, if you're upset with me, you're actually upset with the Father. They understood that. In verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. He will show him greater works than this that you may marvel. Greater works than this. Now, a crippled man was just healed. Amazing thing is, instead of rejoicing, I mean, this man has been crippled for 38 years. A natural response of any man who has a heart for God would be immediately to embrace him and rejoice that this man who's been crippled for 38 years is now walking, yeah. right? Any natural human response would be that. But it's possible to get into such a place of hardness of heart where they can look right past that man who was healed and ask him, who healed you? <laughs> Not wonderful that you're healed. How dare you get healed on Sabbath? <laughs> That's just amazing. Jesus' response, I will do more of this. <laughs> Greater things than this will I do. 
Don't marvel because the God of heaven, Father, is going to do even greater things. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Again, Old Testament language. They know that God is the God of resurrection. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can raise the dead. God used Elijah to raise the son of the widow. So they know God can raise the dead. And here was Jesus standing in front of them and saying, The Father has given me the same authority to give life. So I can imagine the faces of the Pharisees at this point of time, the Jewish leaders. I can imagine what was going on in their heart. Now listen, they were pious, right? They were pious. They, Paul said, had a form of godliness. You know, they, they desired, at some point, there was a good desire in their heart at some point. You know, where, where it went astray, we don't know. But, but at some point, there were some roots of piety. Of, of really wanting to please God. Undoubtedly, it must have been there at some point. But what makes them go off tension like this? It's amazing. Right? God, takes, God gives life and God takes life because He's the creator. He is the first mover, the first cause. He's got no origin. He's the alpha, He's the omega, He's got no beginning. There's no beginning before Him. And here Jesus standing right in front of them says, I share in that same life-giving authority. I have the authority. And if we read this in the context, as we go on and read about judgment, what Jesus was saying is the Father gives and takes spiritual life. But he's given the Son the authority to give spiritual life. That's why we stand before Jesus in judgment, as we read on. <coughs> Verse 22 to 23. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. So just as the Father gives and takes physical life, the Son gives and takes holds the keys to eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying. And they knew what he was saying. Now imagine that the, the context of this conversation is very interesting because here they were uh, trying to trap Jesus. Here they were trying to tell Jesus that, that you obviously cannot be sent by God. You obviously can't be a prophet or a good teacher or a good man or a godly man because if you were, you know. That Sabbath isn't the day that you can do miracles. <laughs> That's their thinking, right? And what was Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, if you don't honor me, you are not honoring the Father. And he goes even further than that. And he says this, one day you will have to stand in front of me because I will be your judge. You see the weight of this entire conversation. The depth and the weight of this conversation is amazing. 
Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. And we read that in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore, God has also as highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's what he found here, verse 24. Verse 25. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, this is not physical dead he's talking about because in the context he's talking about spiritual life-giving power. So here he's saying, even the spiritual dead who hear what I'm saying can find life in me. I can give them life. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. That itself took me three hours of trying to understand it. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. Again, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, not only am I the author of life, not only am I life, but I am life without beginning and without end. I am eternal, just like my Father. Now, at this point of time, I can, I can only imagine the, the conviction, the the weight, the stone that was crushing the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees. I can only imagine that. Verse 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So again, Jesus is making, is making that point again. Don't be surprised. Don't be marveled. Don't be astonished. Listen to me very carefully. That day is coming that whoever I give life to, they will enter into eternal life. Those who don't do good, the good here is not good works. Yeah? The good here is right. Do the right thing. Not do the good things. Do the right thing. Those who do not do the right thing, do not respond to me, they will enter into eternal condemnation. And right face to face with the Jewish leaders, what he's saying is that option is also for you. <laughs> if you do the right thing, I'm your judge. If you do the right thing, you will enter into everlasting life. But if you don't, then you enter into condemnation. What an amazing, amazing dialogue. And for me, this is especially profound dialogue for today because, you know, uh, 
during the whole time of COVID, I, I did a study of the book of Revelation. And, and one of the things that, that struck me was, was the churches in the book of Revelation. You know, the seven churches in the book of Revelation were not just physical churches. There is a church in Ephesus. There is a church in Saturdays. There is a church in Smyrna. There is a church in Philadelphia. The churches were physical, historical churches. And then there were also types of churches. Churches of uh, types. And then there were also a chronological order of time of these churches. And the last church, and we see this in the book of Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 onwards. The last church, in fact, this portion of scripture in Revelation 3, 14 onwards, is the last time in the entire Bible that the word church is used. After this, there's no more mention of church. But the last time the mention of church is made, it's made of this church called the Church of Laodicea. The Church of Laodicea has a distinct, not very proud claim because that was the only church that had all the exterior of Christianity but it didn't have Christ. It was the only Christless church. That's why we read in, in, in those portions of Scripture, and he says that, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If you open the door, then I will come in and I will dine with you. Because Jesus, so close, and yet the Pharisees couldn't see it. And the church history, future, prophecy, will also end like that. Where the Christianity will come to a point where we will have a Christianity without Christ. Is that scary what? That we will be worshipping worship. That we will be in service of service. That we will be full time, but we will have no time. We will worship the Jesus of the crowd, but he won't be. The Jesus of the closet. We can reach that point where we can lose Christ and not even know it. And that's why the church of Lodisha, the warning was, you, you are naked and poor and you don't even know. <laughs> Come and buy from me gold that's tried in fire and I will cloak you. I will clothe your nakedness. Jesus was making that invitation come. See, Jesus is the only religious figure that never lorded over his followers. Every religious leader or teacher, you have to carry his bag, you have to wash his shoes, you have to carry his clothes, you have to cook for him. What did Jesus do? He cooked fish. This is specialty fish and chips. 
I'm not sure about chips, but he cooked for them. What was the last thing he did before he faced the crucifixion? What was the last thing he did? He washed the disciples' feet. Everything that Jesus did and pointed to was pointing towards just this one thing. His desire for intimacy with us. That's why when he reflected himself, the relationship that he put between Jesus and us is one of a bride and a groom. Because there is no closer relationship than a husband and wife. This is not a relationship of a master and a servant. Because then it is possible to end up where these Pharisees end up. Or it's even possible to be engaging in prophesying and doing good things. But then Jesus said, but I don't know you. That we can be so committed to the good causes that we circumvent or skirt or walk right past the cross. That we can meet, miss the most important things because we are avoiding that intimacy. That's going to be the condition of the last church before the end times, before the day of the Lord. A church without Christ inside. A Christianity without Jesus inside. And this hit me hard because even a good cause like missions... <laughs> Even a good cause like missions can be an escape from that intimacy. Worshipping in a crowd can be an escape from that intimacy. And this entire scripture warning to us is this. If we reach that place where we have a Christless Christianity, the law without understanding the heart of the Father, then we will be just as blinded and hardened in our hearts as these Jewish leaders were. First time I read it, I laughed. I said, the guy was just healed after 38 years and you can't even see it. That's what blindness does. <laughs> That's what blindness does. And yet, even to the Jewish leaders, Jesus made that invitation. If you believe, you will have life. And that same invitation Jesus is making to us this morning. He is saying, I want to know you. I want you to know me. Just like Peter reacted when Jesus said, I want to wash your feet. What did Jesus say? If I don't wash your feet, then you are not part of me. You're not part of me. Only option in Christianity is actually intimacy or a Christless Christianity. There is no crowd Christianity. There is no following Jesus in the crowd. Christless Christianity or a close and intimate walk with Jesus. 
as he made that invitation to the Jewish leaders, he made that same invitation to the church of Lodicia. He made the same thing. Listen, as many as I love, I correct. That's what he said right in the, begin, right in the middle of that portion, uh, Revelation 3, 14 onwards. After telling them about their nakedness and blindness, and yet in the middle of that, he puts an intimate invitation. Not just if you open your hearts, I will come in. Said the reason I'm telling you this is because I love you. It's because I love you. Who is this Jesus to us today? Who 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 is this Jesus? Is he just a, a name? Is he just a, 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 a fantastic person? Is it just a key for eternal life? Or is he someone that we are willing to draw close to? As we go on in the book of John, you will read some amazing portions of Scripture of the kind of intimacy that Jesus desired from us. And one of the main highlights would be John 15. And he talks about the abiding relationship with him. Just as he abides in the Father, how we are one with him. This is what Jesus desires from us this morning. As we watch this video, it talks about how great our God is. But most importantly, I think the question the Holy Spirit is asking us this afternoon is, but who is this Jesus in my life? It's not about all the amazing things he is. Who is this Jesus in my life? Just a name in a song or just someone that we follow in the crowd? Or is he someone that we are intimately connected to and, in and, and walking with? This afternoon, that's the invitation to us. Jesus is saying, come. I want to walk with you. I want to journey with you. I want you to know me. Just as a husband and wife, a bride and a groom, I want that intimacy with you. That's the invitation to us this morning. So I just pray, as you watch this, reflect on this question, and even in this coming week, Reflect on this question. Everything that we know about Jesus is wonderful, but who he is to us is the most important question this afternoon. Amen. The Bible says, my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's 
a sinner's savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Terror couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave 